My name is Tarika Bolatangidi. I am a Fijian-Australian visual artist and lecturer in art and performance at Deakin University. And I'm also a recent uh, collaborator with the artists. And I'll be hosting tonight's Q&A with Emile Ungavule and Aisha Ash, who are blackbirds. This evening's Q&A session is being recorded and will appear on the Arts House website. Uh, so for the benefit of the recording, I'm just going to begin with an overview of blackbirds and their practice and uh, specifically the work Exhale, which you all saw this evening. So Emily and Aisha are the core members of the Blackbirds Creative Arts Company, which was founded in 2015. The core premise of forming Blackbirds was to address the lack of representation and misrepresentation of women in colour in the Australian arts industry. They're committed to making work that aspires to be intersectional, interdisciplinary and intercultural. With each project, creatives are invited to collaborate on works that dissect and document the female black diasporic experience in Australia through art and performance in a variety of mediums and spaces, both theatrical and non-theatrical. So the performance that we saw this evening was called Exhale and speaks directly to the diasporic experience of Emily and Aisha as women whose ancestry includes Māori, Grenadian, Tokelauan and Fijian. Exhale is about indigeneity, accountability and trauma. It explores the relationships and boundaries forged between Indigenous cultures on foreign lands, negotiations between environmental and urban lifestyles and the ability to heal through storytelling. It is a work that asks, how do we find light within the dark? How do we cultivate beauty out of trauma and begin to heal for ourselves and one another? So before I hand the microphone over to you for questions, I just wanted to start with something. <laughs> so I wanted to start by thanking you for sharing this really, really personal work. Um, you have been sharing personal photographs and videos of your family, both, part, both past and present, and it's a deeply personal work that centres the knowledge of your family and uh, your elders and your families. And it also speaks of this really kind of delicate place that you occupy as young women who are piecing together uh, the threads of your ancestry and your roles and responsibilities, um, this sense of negotiating your accountability to family and the tension that this presents in an urban Australian context that's at odds with the reality of your ancestral lands. So while all of that is happening, I also feel like Exhale presents us with a montage of who you are now and Aisha and Emily in this in this present moment, but I also feel like it forces us to think about the future as you prepare to step into familial roles that you perhaps feel prepared or underprepared for. And I wonder if you can talk us through the genesis of this work and the process of working with your respective families and communities and what it means to centre their stories. There was a lot in that, but basically... <laughs> All right, so what I'm referring to in that part is that I love the scene where... Um, you are, there's some video of someone who I imagine is one of your cousins, Emily, and you're on the boat, and there's just this look of recognition. And so often we see Fijian communities uh, who are photographed by strangers and expected to just pose in this really kind of passive way, but there is a look in the children, uh, in their eyes, that is reciprocal, and, it's, and it, it reflects the love that you make the work with. Thank you, Tarika, um, for that beautiful introduction and question. Um, uh, this project, I think, it started with us um, realising that we are constantly putting, uh, whether uh, consciously and unconsciously putting our own trauma on display. Um, and we 
part of us, um, part of that is is because we're trying to heal, um, and part of that is because we have very limited opportunities to tell stories, and so because that urgency or that need to kind of talk about stuff that's constantly at the forefront of our minds is there, it just happens. Um, but we wanted to really focus on like how we actually heal ourselves through um, through that storytelling. So it's there and it's present, and I. I don't think in my personal life it'll ever go away, but the the the, um, the connections that I um, that I make um, for myself, whether that's online, like you know, YouTubing or googling stuff, or whether that's meeting other people who are like me in similar um, situations, is what I guess we wanted this work to be about, and um, and reflecting that. Um, and for me, working with my family, this is the first time we've done a work where we haven't our stories haven't completely intertwined. So usually we have a lot of chorus work. Um, usually we, we're completely in one another's stories and the form is quite similar throughout, whereas this time um, we decided to have Aisha would tell her story her own way and I would support that and I would do the same. And so you had a, a monologue which was cut up and then you had me moving, um, which feels m- more natural to me. And... Um, it was the first time that even though our families were the centre, which is what Aisha noticed, um, we had no family members come and watch it, um, which was really odd, <laughs> odd for us because usually there's always at least like our mums can make it or when we were in when we had that exhibition, one talk exhibition, like so much of my Fijian family came along, which was amazing. And so it's it's healing for us in the sense that we need them to be here. Like I constantly feel the need to be surrounded by my family. But the fact that they're not here is also um, that absence is really hard, I think, to deal with. Um, and so I find family, or we find family in like-minded people. Did you do you think that if your father saw that piece, that he would be um, he would feel challenged by that that aspect that you talk about about not being prepared? to take on the roles in Fiji that you're expected to? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I know. Because also I grew up mostly with my mum because my dad worked away so much. Um, so my dad is used to doing all the hard work behind the scenes and um, me feeling, talking more about my, my my maternal lineage because that's what I grew up with, stronger. Um, and... This is the first time I feel like I've actually been able to say, like, actually, I see the work that you're doing, but it, and you're working very hard, but it's very difficult for me as well because I've had to piece everything together and ask questions of lots of different people to work it out. So I know my dad would be really confronted by it because he is working hard. Mm. Um, and but I did, I was very open. Like I spoke to him lots about it, and he was very happy to help me um, with this work. Um, but it would be confronting because like Ish was talking about with her grandparents overcompensating with overfeeding like that's what my that's what my dad does as well like he overcompensates all the time by trying to give me too much um and I know that as a result that kind of contributes to his uh to me feeling underprepared because I'm still at a stage where my dad will be like do you need money do you need food what's going on like are you stressed like don't like just calm down just have a sleep and I'm like no I'm fine dad like you don't need to I'm reaching an age where I need to do what you're doing and I can't do that if you're babying me all the time. 
Um, and I know that that's because that comes from my dad having to to leave and leave his family and work for his family. So, yeah, it would be confronting, but I've had 100% support from him and my entire family, which I'm very grateful for. And Aisha, your part of the story too is very much sort of um, trying to piece together conflicting bits of information. Yeah, Yeah, how was that? Um, It's really interesting. So I interviewed my grandpa for about... Two hours, um, but our relationship is, we've always been extremely close. I just grew up with my mum, so my grandpa's always been like a father figure to me. And, but he's always been very careful about what he shares about his life. So sometimes for years he would go without saying a single thing or saying something really silly like, I used to have a pink suit and that was the information he wanted to tell me. I was like, wow, that's so helpful. And um, as he's been getting older and I think as he's realising that he doesn't have the same time to to hold on to information. He's letting out bits of information here and there. And so three years ago, I think it was now, um, my mum, my grandpa and I went on a trip to Aotearoa and it was the first time that he'd been back in about 40 years. And since that, he's been more willing to talk about his life, but a lot of it, he doesn't want to talk about it because it was so hard. Two of his sisters, once they left the marae, they never ever went back. Um, the, his other sisters, they've still very closely culturally connected but um for him and Pam and Ruth it was very difficult so talking to him about it has been quite hard as well because he's one of those men that I've never seen cry or sad so and I can feel him getting upset and so that's really difficult to try and maneuver that and he's he's turning 80 as well you know what I mean like it's very hard but I just he I know he wants to talk about but he doesn't know how and I think he's very shamed like very Mm has a lot of shame about his life and experienced a lot of... Even when I asked him, it was not in the show, but I asked him about racism and he just said, I can't speak about it, I don't want to speak about it. So there's obviously a lot of pain there that he's not willing to talk about, which is fine, but I still know that he knows so much more, but it's about how I can connect with him and feel that he can express that. Yeah. I found it really interesting that you both sort of focused on the the patriarchal or the, the paternal... Um, sort of line in your heritage. Um, was that something that you kind of intended when you were making the work or it just evolved out of the, the subject matter itself? Um, I think it just evolved out of the subject matter. I mean, I'm always talking about my grandpa. My grandpa's quite a character. He's very funny. So he's always in our conversations and he's the connection to um, my Māori side. My nana, m- my grandpa's wife, she was adopted and similar story to his mum. We don't really know her cultural background or where she came from or anything so that's I think very hard for her so we've all kind of just um been encompassed by his marae and his his whanau um but yeah we something weird we always kind of seem to ding 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 ding, ding like connect yeah, yeah. and then really, work that way we're really good at being stuck in a room for a week and um going crazy literally wanting to put everything we can possibly think of into our work um, write every scene, make every movement piece that we can and then get to the end of it and hate it all. And cancel everything. And cancel everything and then write the whole thing in like two days. Right. <laughs> um, and so we, with this process we did the same. Like we went back and forth on everything. It was like, okay, what do we mean? Like what – because when we initially pitched this work to um, Naomi, um, it was about – healing and so we're, the, the the conversation started around okay so what does that mean 
to us as individuals, but what does that mean in terms of ways that we've been taught to heal from our respective lineages? And um, how do we create that in this kind of space? Because the theatre space is... Um, it's it's the the relationship between performer and audience is really hard to break. It's a very there's a very old old relationship that happens, and we constantly with every work are trying to break the barrier of what that means, um, because with new work comes new audiences, and new audience equals new rules of interaction. And um, often we we come from communities where people want to voice their response, or um, move their response to like in real time to the work so the discussion started with okay what what do we want people to feel when they leave how do we want them to feel healed what is an act of healing within the process like do we need people to be making things Mm -hmm. do we need people to be singing with us do we need like we went through this whole list of things and then um eventually we got to a point where we decided we can only start we can only really focus on ourselves um, there's an acting saying, which is there's a universality in the specific. Um, and so we ended up going back to that one, because this is a new space. Um, and this is a new, this is a new arts precinct for us. So people don't know our work. We don't know how people would handle us asking them to engage with us, even the people that we know who are here. Um, and from there, I guess, once, like I, Ish said, like, her grandpa calls her all the time. He's con- we <laughs> constantly joking about grandpa. And um, my parents are always calling me as well and talking to me. And my grandmother is, like, um, everything to me. She's literally, like, my whole world centers, centers around my grandmother. And she became a widow. Um, and, my, and that's where the conversation for me started was because when my grandfather died, when my tutu died, she had to... Um, look after all of those kids on her own and she really struggled and so it be- then it became the discussion became around okay hard work like what in our lives <laughs> have we inherited from our grandparents and it's working really fucking hard all the co- all yeah. the time because they our great grandparents and our parents have had to work because they've had to live off the land and learn a whole new set of skills even though like my grandparents my grandmother and my grandfather had ancestral lands and do took them a very long time to learn how to re-harvest that after they've been taught no these are the skills that you need in order to survive not these skills don't do this this won't get you anywhere um and so my dad inherited that and as a result i've inherited that but um, it translated into an art career rather than what they would consider, uh, I guess, a standard normal career, an appropriate career. And so that's what the conversation, why I guess it became about our grandparents because it was like, it, it started with our grandparents but actually was about us but was about our grandparents. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to hand it over to the audience now for questions. Who would- Who'd like to start? Anybody? Yes. I might bring Mike to you. Thanks. Hi, my name's Ingrid. Um, I've, I'm a child of migrant parents. I also had um, a parent who um, refused to ever expand on um, his history. So my question is to Aisha: How do you deal with your grandfather? when he just simply refuses to expand? How do you process that? Um, It's really taxing because I can feel his 
pain and his frustration, like I, it comes out in me then as well. And in the interview that I did with him, and this is in a lot of conversations as well, um, I just keep asking why, 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 who, why, and just keep asking and asking. I also find it really helps my nana um, knows my gra- – I feel like my nana knows my grandpa's life better than my grandpa does. So whenever I'm on the phone to my grandpa talking about his life, I can hear my nana in the background going, don't forget this, don't forget that. So <laughs> it helps to have an extra person there. But it is a, a matter of patience and I think that's another family trait that we have is impatience. So that's definitely a, been a big learning curve for me. Um, and also I think now as my grandpa's getting older, as I was saying, he's becoming a little bit more willing to speak about it and I do want him to feel like he can before he moves on. And I think, yeah, he's getting there. It's just um, it's a slow process of love and listening. Well, well done. It was very, very well expressed. Thank and you. I really enjoyed it. Thank Thanks, you very much. ladies. Anybody else while I'm up? Hello. Um, thank you so much. Um, I always wonder how people put these things together <laughs> and um and and it's not very specific but I was hoping you might talk a little bit about you know you say you've a week in a room and then you kind of throw it all out the window and then and I was thinking well what are the influences that you brought with you into the room alongside your family stories um other people's work that maybe is ringing in your ears or objects or bits of music, all of those things that you put together. That's what I'm really interested in um, alongside the stories. And I just, I'm sorry it's not more specific, but just the thought, the, the kind of process stuff. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Um, thanks for your question. Uh, it's, I think f- for us, like we're quite um, visual people. Um, we both trained as actors, um, but um, throughout this process, since we've started creating, we've had to be like very hands-on across everything. Um, one, because we've never really had the budget to have <laughs> everyone, like have a designer, you know, like a set designer, a costume designer, um, a director. Like we've kind of really had to do everything else ourselves. So we've had to learn a lot of skills along the way of sound design and visual design and like all these kinds of things. Um, and so as a result, uh, we in this process just try to keep everything as relative to our I guess real time experiences as possible um, and I think we had to be really careful with this one too because as we were researching and talking to our families it was I think the hardest it's ever been when we've been making a work as in we were so emotionally exhausted mm-hmm. every single day mm-hmm. we would just sit in the corner of the room and be like oh my god why are we doing this to ourselves um, and I think it was also one of the first times that we really looked at a lot of academic literature because there's actually a lot of information about um, Indigenous peoples and using social networking sites and technologies as ways of healing, mm. which was something that I was, like, super taken back by. There's actually a few um, uh, papers by um, uh, academics from New Zealand so that they're really um, specific and focused, which really helped us a lot, I think, in even thinking about how we use chat or how we use phone calls or how we connect to people overseas um and yeah music and it's like it's basically our lives like every work that we do always has a dance scene that's because we're always dancing yeah Um, in rehearsal like everywhere at the bus stop we're always dancing um but also technology is such like each said such an important part of Mm -hmm. the way that we connect to ourselves our family um and community um and i and i to be honest like i really 
I struggle very much so with the conversation around um, social media because of how much it does give us, um, but at the same time how isolating it can be Mm. and how misrepresentative it can be often. So it was important for us to put something like that in as well. And we also tend to work in vignettes a lot. So it's very much so like this is a glimpse of our lives. This is a glimpse of our lives, Um, which is because we're not playwrights. Um, So everything is about um, moving and trying and then just trying to piece that together, seeing what feels right and what speaks to us in terms of the story and then finding ways to like, I guess, align it, but still keeping it as moments, glimpses of allowing you into our story. Um, Because yeah, everything for us is that. It just feels like constant, like moment after moment after moment of being hit with something, hit with trauma, being triggered, having something amazing happen, being triggered, having something amazing over and over and over again. So... (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? Hi. Hi. Um, Hi. As a Pacific Islander who um, grew up in white Australia, I, am, I have children your age, um, I wanted to talk about Boney M and how... Um, it's, it's like a soundtrack to our lives as Pacific Islanders, but I know that it's, it's an African-American sort of scene and I feel that as I grew up, we tended, because we didn't have the Pacific Island cultural scene, that we tended to gravitate towards African-American. And I'm um, sort of glad to see that we were starting to, you know, find our own identity and I wanted to ask how you, uh, what you felt, or, or what, how do you feel about Pacific Islanders identifying with African Americans? I know that in the towing communities we call them uh, yos, like island kids who identify as African Americans, because you know you are either white or I think African American is represented as the main people of colour. And we tend to sort of, you know, a lot of our our kids tend to identify with that because for lack of, of their own, you know, um, for lack of, you know, for, of their own culture. And uh, was that the same for you guys as you were growing up here in, in Australia? I mean, did you tend to... Because we didn't have the Pacific Island culture represented. Um, I'll just give a little... Um, background about why we chose the Boney M, why I chose Boney M. So my grandpa loves Boney M. When I was a kid, he used to play that Rasputin song so loud. Um, he used to pick. He went had a few. He's had a few midlife crises, and one of them, he bought a red BMW convertible, and he used to pick me up from school playing Boney M really loudly. And in high school, when I was like fourteen, so you can imagine how embarrassed I was. And um, so that song for me has always been like grandpa, grandpa, and he still plays it to this day. Um, and I think it's exactly what you were saying. When he was growing up, he, there was no um, Māori superstars or idols. And also I think because he was so disenchanted with his own identity as an Indigenous person that he did cling to that kind of African-American look and Boniam is so flamboyant. And also my grandpa spent a bit of time living in America, so he kind of clung to those things. But, yeah, it's um, very popular in our, in our family now. And I think also that's something that we've bonded over before, Boniam classics. <laughs> So much Boney M in car trips. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but definitely about um, black culture and its effect on us growing up. I mean, 
Emily will speak for herself, but I've definitely felt that for a long time that was and still is mostly what all I've seen of women of colour, of black women with natural hair, um, or even most of them don't have natural hair. So as a kid I remember seeing, distinctly remember watching Say My Name film clip and just being like, wow, look at these women, oh my God. And they were the only women that I saw when I was young and I never ever saw a woman of colour who wasn't Indigenous represented in Australia anywhere. Oh, maybe Marsha Hines, but she always had a wig anyway. So it was, yeah, black culture has definitely been something that I've had a strange relationship to as well because I have half of my ancestry is Grenadian, which is originally West African, taken through the transatlantic slave trade, and I have relatives who live in America, in Atlanta, in um, New York and in London who do very much live that black culture lifestyle. So I feel like I'm kind of part of it, but I'm definitely not because I've been raised in Brisbane, which is like the whitest place ever. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing process of self-identity discovery. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I would agree with Aisha in that uh, as a Pacific Islander growing up here, like I just – because I grew up in WA in the south coast – um, about an hour south of Perth and 30 minutes inland, right near Pinjara. Um, and there's quite um, – there's, there's a strong Aboriginal community there, but they tend to keep to themselves because um, there's a very violent history there, as there is everywhere. Um, and so I was very – I went to Catholic school as well. So there was, like, no other Pacific Islanders. And when there was, they were Melanesian and they'd come for about a term and then they'd leave – and I always felt it as if it was because they couldn't, they didn't, they felt uncomfortable. Like that's how I read it because I'd connect with them and we'd hang out every lunchtime and then they'd just disappear. Um, and so I didn't really have any other point of reference growing up here. And when I was about 14, that was the first time that any family came over. So I was here with my parents for about maybe nine, eight years. And then family started coming over like in the plane loads, like literally family in my house all the time, which I loved because I didn't, I didn't have that when I was younger. But they came from New Zealand and what they brought with them was that really strong connection to black African-American culture, which I had never really... Like, I'd watched it on television, but my parents were so strict I never really was allowed to watch television that much anyway. Um, and so my cousins came in, like, with Tupac and Biggie Smalls and... Oh, what's that one? T-Bone and, you know, like... Uh, you know the one he, he's like he's really oh, fast rapper isn't that um, Exhibit? Uh, he's fast as well oh, okay. yeah they're all fast <laughs> um, so it was hard because I was like okay these are like these are my older cousins this is something they identify with I look up to them okay cool like I should be into that too and the people that they're looking at kind of look like me so I guess I should get into that but um, as I've gotten older and as I've um, realised more about the role that I, the roles or role that I need to be stepping into within my family context, I've actually tried to let go of that more. But it's hard because I have so many black friends and it's such a common language um, and it's so commodified, the culture that we receive here versus the real black culture, whatever that is in America, that that also then is another layer that's hard to navigate. Um, so, yeah, it definitely is a thing and it's a real thing and it's different here to what it is in, in New Zealand and, and America and, you know, those of our diaspora that grew up in other Western countries again, but it's very present. And I feel like the only way that we can actually combat that is combat that is by 
pushing for more visibility for our communities in those kinds of spaces, but on our terms. And by encouraging our kids to do what we're trying to do as adults, like admit that we're lost and say it's okay to ask questions and um, it's okay to say I don't know, but I, I want to know um, and push the, keep pushing the conversation that way um, because, you know, if the kids feel like they, they can't connect to it and they're too scared to ask questions, then they'll do the other thing. They'll just revert to what everyone else is doing. So I hope for that future. I really do. Any other questions? Yeah. I'm interested in language. And, and the words that you used originally weren't translated. What language were you speaking? In, in which part? At the beginning? Yes. Oh, I was speaking my mother's language. I was speaking Tokelauan. Which is what? Tokelauan. Yeah, so it's a Polynesian dialect. Right. Yep. It's got similarities to... Tuvaluan. Yes. Yes. So you're like both you the same? I thought it was Fijian initially when you were... No, so um, my, whenever we do a work, we always, our, we always that's our set acknowledgement that we have. Mm. Um, and Aisha always sings in Te Reo and I sing in my mother's... Uh, I speak on behalf, so I reintroduce ourselves and our lineages on both our maternal and paternal sides in my mother's dialect. Because that's, com- that's the language I'm, all com- I'm the most comfortable with um, yes. and that I've been taught to address myself in. I feel that it's sometimes that culture is the language as well, and if you lose the language, you lose a lot. Yeah, definitely. And my grandpa speaks about how when he went to school, he was he could only speak Tereo, he couldn't speak English, and they literally beat the language out of him. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of that's how control happens as well. They try and strip you of your culture. If you can't speak a language, you're very disconnected. Yes. You know, and that's how you lose stories and memories and places and names. So, yeah, it's um, there's yeah, there's been a big. Uh, rejuvenation of that in in Aotearoa for a few decades now. But, uh, what I would like to have known was a bit more about the background, why they came to Australia or how mm. they came to Australia. Can you just very briefly tell us about that? Yeah, well, my grandparents, uh, my grandpa had been living overseas. He'd been in the US Army and then he worked as a, an armed guard in the Congo and um, he'd been writing to my grandmother all that time. Um, and he was born where? He was born in New Zealand. Yeah, in uh, just down from Rotorua, a place called Ruatoki. Um, and he came back to New Zealand, saw my grandma at the post office. Next week they were in Australia married. So they just eloped here um, because they both had a, had enough of Aotearoa. But he's not Maori. He is, yeah. Oh, he is Maori. Yeah, right. yeah. And uh, that's how they came here. My parents moved here in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, because my dad was doing fly and fly out from New Zealand, because um, my dad by trade is a boilermaker, um, and then slowly he's worked his way up as an engineer, and so he worked in um, in the desert in Western Australia um, as a boilermaker, and then became a pipe fitter, um, working in gas, and so my parents came over through that, and that's how I got here. You know, we are a migrant community, but we're so diverse, and we don't mm. know about lots of other migrants, so. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting as well. My grandparents lived in Sydney for 25 years and when they moved there, they said it was the absolute best because was, that was when a lot of European migrants were coming over. Yes. And they said it was the, the most amazing. My grandpa spoke about um, my auntie Dallas coming home from school one day. Someone had given her octopus sandwiches and they were like, what the... And then the next day they'd all, they'd all been at the deli buying octopus. So just things like that. It's very interesting of how, you know, yeah, different times. So when you think about your roots, where do you think you 
what do you identify with? Oh, that's another show. <laughs> I'm not joking. Oh, mate, oh, that's a tough one. Uh, there's, we have, I feel like I have many, many identities and I'm still just struggling to figure them out. And that's the question of home as well. Like, where is home? What does home mean? Yes. That's um, the performance of Salt. I don't know if you saw it. Yes. It really yes. brought that, yeah, well, that home. Yeah. Well, I feel as well like my dad's side of the family have lost a lot of their history through the slave trade, so I don't really know anything about them. Um, and my my mum's side of the family is very well documented, but it's just maintaining that connection. So. And you as a young person, do you feel comfortable in the society or not? Um, on and off. <laughs> I've had, yeah, I've definitely experienced a lot of racism living in Australia, yes. but I know a lot of people have, so... Yeah, that's it's how complex. we connect. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Like, I guess those moments where we were chatting to one another and where we dance and where we kind of lift up, try to uplift one another is like, that's real. That's because we experience a lot of, um, a lot um, of marginalization, mm. but we find strength in one another. Thank you both. Um, I just wanted to add a comment on language and diaspora and it being, and traveling being an indigenous experience that we all share. And so I went on a residency last year and in Banff and uh, was with other Indigenous art writers and we were thinking a lot, basically crying and talking for a whole month, similar to maybe a week in the studio with you two. <laughs> um, and we got to a place of thinking about diaspora as ancestral wisdom, that you, that you to have a healthy community you need certain people to become outliers, go and learn things elsewhere, and come home later. And sometimes the coming home later takes multiple generations. Yes. And that's like, there's this, there's a, the really toxic authenticity kind of notion that comes from European culture, you know, through missionaries and all of those kinds of plantation economies and things that are uh, assaulted onto us in this part of the world, in the Great Ocean region. And it kind of poisons how we think who we are. And I just wanted to say I see you and I really resonate with everything that you've been working through. So thank you. Thank um, you and that you. it's like the, the language, the way that you express the sensuality in everything that you're doing is part of home. Mm. You know, like we carry our home with us and the ocean, all the oceans are always highways. Mm. And the borders that crossed us can again be deleted, you know, mm. like that. This notion, you know, the kind of how the canoes were always going everywhere. Of course, people on every coast knew everybody. And how the trauma of being, like, contained is such a lived thing and, and embodied in what you're talking about as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That just gave me so much to think about. <laughs> Next show. <laughs> Part two. Any other questions? I just wanted to ask one final thing around... Yes, ask us. <laughs> this was yes, the last thing. <laughs> um, around, you know, you embody a lot of stories, not just in this work where it's really personal, familial stories, but also in your other verbatim work. Um, and I wonder if you, you know, how you go about sort of self-preservation because of obviously embodying a lot of this trauma and representing it, opening yourselves up to Q&A sessions like this, which is a really, you know, central part of the work that you do as well. Um but, you know, it's got to be taxing. I mean, I felt when watching your show quite exhausted. I mean, yeah. that resonates with me anyway. But, um, yeah, how do, you, how, do you, how do you get through this? Like what, what are your 
mechanisms for finding strength and joy in all of this? To be honest, I'm still working that out. Yeah. Um, we talk to each other. All the time. And our mums. And that really helps. A lot. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're, this also happens. Yeah. We're very good at becoming the same person um, constantly. But it's like that's a hard that's, – um, that's a very good question because mm-hmm. it's a very hard question. Um, I, like, I like going to the gym. I like listening to podcasts mm. and dancing. Like Dan- so, I, dancing yeah. for us, like when we're together, dancing for sure. Um, Talking trash. We usually talk trash for a good like, just like thirty minutes when we start a rehearsal. Just get everything out. This is what happened in the last twenty-four hours. This is what this boy said to me. All this kind of rubbish. Just get it out, and then we do the work. Yeah. Um, but individually, yeah. I, for me, it's um, it's actually doing what you saw, which is watching videos mm. um, of my family. Um, of my family dancing, of my family singing. Um, it's watching Mecca videos, Hatele videos. Like just that's actually my biggest source of um, self-preservation because I feel like it always centers me trying to just in the flurry of everyone telling me what I should be, I know that that's the one thing I connect to constantly, which is the way my family dance and the way that my family sing. So it's, yeah, that's that. And I think also sometimes you just need to surround yourself with people who've had similar experiences to you, like people of colour or I, I always call it like a black recharge, you know, like black recharge and um, just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just being silly and yeah. But also people like it's you want to be able to find people who are like you and who have a similar experience but are willing to work past that as well, you know? Um, mm. So that's hard as well. Like it's good for everyone to get together and have a talonoa and be like, this is what I'm feeling. But um, it's even better to do that with a cup of tea and maybe an episode or something. Do you know what I mean? Like being like, okay, we've we shared this experience and we've, we've spoken about it. Now, now let's, let's watch or do Laura something together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. But we're we're still definitely learning. We're still trying, yeah. trying lots of things always to, um, because it is exhausting. It is. Thank you so much for your work. Thank Thank you. you. Please join me in thanking Emilia and Aisha. Thank you.